What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Storytime with Uncle Reddit. I'm John. Nickel's back. Nickelback. <laughs> anyway, this is r slash uh, pro revenge. So the cat trap's working for now. Um, I have Audacity running on this monitor here, which is recording the audio, and uh, the waveform seems to get his attention every so often. So uh, if nothing else, we'll have a cat staring at a monitor or thinking he sees something behind me. All right, let's read some stories. I'll come back so long as Larry isn't there. Got permission to share this from my buddy who is a software engineer. To give you some background on my friend Tim, made up name, he's been programming since he was like 7 years old. Tim said by the time he got to college he breezed through most of his comp sci classes because a lot of the content they were covering he had already mastered years prior. Tim is an excellent programmer. Tim's career has been quite successful. He's worked for Google, Facebook, Amazon and finally a hedge fund. The story starts at the hedge fund. Tim works a lot with AI technology and at this hedge fund he was the lead programmer manager who spearheaded an effort to optimize their AI that helped them complete literally millions of trades a day. To say his work had a massive impact was an understatement. All of this is going on with COVID in the background. Due to COVID they went to a work from home model where my friend Tim kept working. During the work from home Tim was looking around his fancy $4,500 New York City apartment and wished for things like a yard, a heated pool, a nice three-car garage, and not living in a high-rise. It dawned on Tim that he could leave New York City. Tim moved to Michigan. So Tim moved back to his hometown in Michigan where he bought himself a really nice home with a heated pool, a three-car garage, a nice yard, and guess what the yard had in it? A mother-in-love suite, which was essentially a two-bedroom, one-bath second home on the property of his main home, which he turned into his man cave. <laughs> it's actually pretty sick. Oh yeah, and his mortgage payment was far less than the 4.5k a month rent, like half. Tim spent the rest of his COVID-19 work from home pounding out projects, etc. He never actually informed his employer on an official basis that he moved, he just kept working. Then COVID-19 ended. COVID-19 is finally over, back to the office, or... Tim's boss, Larry, calls him up and goes, Alright Tim, on Monday we're starting work back at the office. And Tim goes, yeah, about that. I moved to Michigan. Larry is shocked and goes, you didn't even ask if you could do that. And Tim basically said, I didn't know I needed your permission to move in a sarcastic way. Larry insists that Tim needs to move back to New York City or he won't have a place on the team. Tim says he's been doing the exact same work from home at a high level for the past year. He's willing to travel to New York City for a few meetings a year on his own dime, but he feels his quality of life is so much higher outside of New York and he has no desire to live in the city. To which Larry said if Tim doesn't have any desire to live in New York City, then he has no desire to keep Tim employed. Now dear Reddit, what do you think a talented senior programmer with over a decade of experience who specializes in AI technology is going to say to a response like that? If you're thinking he quit, you'd be absolutely right. He quit. Maintaining complex code can be hard. Now anyone that has done any programming knows that sometimes the best person to maintain the code is the person who wrote the code. There's logic, there's thought processes, there's so much that goes into programming that can be so individualistic it can be hard for someone to take over a code base they didn't write. John, the CEO, enters the picture. Six weeks goes by when John calls Tim. John is the CEO of the hedge fund. John gets Tim to agree to consider coming back. So that's when John suggests they fly Tim to New York City and he sits down with John. Tim, however, flipped the switch and said, No, how about you fly out to Michigan and we discuss this? 
Tim said he said that because he wanted to establish if he was going to come back, it was going to be him working for Michigan. And if he was going to talk about his employment, it was going to be done in Michigan. John agreed and two days later flew out to meet with Tim. Tim sits down and John says they really need him because he provided a lot of value to the organization and the programming team is struggling. John offers Tim the opportunity to come back with a 20% pay cut since he won't be living in New York City and John called that a cost of living adjustment. To which Tim said, no, I want a 15% raise above what I was earning. John sits back and responds, the reason we pay what we pay is because we ask you to live in New York City and we understand that's an expensive city to live in. To which Tim says, you pay what you pay and you pay it because I'm worth it. If I wasn't worth what you pay, you wouldn't be paying me. Now my first condition is if you want me back, it'll be a 15% raise. John goes and second. The second condition is I'll come back so long as Larry isn't there. John sighs, you're asking for too much. To which Tim goes, you don't need to bring me back if you don't want to. I'll be fine elsewhere. John goes, I'll talk to the partners. And Tim says, my offer is good till Friday. John says, what do you mean? Tim says, next Monday is when I'm going to start looking for work. This offer is good until Friday. It was Tuesday, so John leaves. That Thursday, the phone rings and it's John. In conclusion, Tim, we're transferring Larry to a different fund. He won't be working with you anymore and we're fine with giving you a 15% raise. Can we send you an offer letter for you to sign? Tim said, of course, and Larry's really gone. John goes, yes, you will never need to interact with Larry ever again. That was at the start of this year. Tim hasn't been in New York City, hasn't heard from Larry, hasn't seen Larry on any communications, etc. I think Nickel thinks it's dinner time. He might be right, but I don't feed the cats. It's not my job, so... Eh. I can see where some companies have their base pay adjusted according to their geographic location. New York City's more expensive, you pay a little bit higher rate. I get that. But overall, for somebody like this senior programmer... You're paying for his expertise and his experience. You're really not paying anything for him to live in New York City. He's holding all the cards and has all the leverage. Um, yeah. You either pay it or you don't. I'm pretty sure somebody like that can find work anywhere and name their price. So, yeah. John was smart when he took that deal. You can always find another Larry. It's really a bad idea to make a government employee angry. This one is a double government employee event, and what you should know is if you get the attention of a government employee and make them angry, they will make your life a living hell. Sorry, this is a long one. The setup is that I was working for a local county government in the permitting department that handled drainage and floodplain enforcement. I received a complaint from a homeowner, nice guy, lived next door to a house that was part of an incorporated village, not a nice guy. Nice guy lived in an unincorporated portion of the county, and hence the call to me as an agent of the county. I drove out to the site and to investigate and discovered some interesting facts. The permitting agent for the village allowed the incorporated homeowner to fill his lot, affecting the drainage which caused the unincorporated lot to flood every time there was anything more than light rain. Nice Guy indicated that there was some tension between him and not Nice Guy, and part of the issue was that Nice Guy and his partner were a gay couple. This ran up a red flag for me, but in trying to be impartial, I took the information and some photos for the file and indicated that I would contact the village to find a resolution. I wrote a letter and then called the village inspector, Jackwagon, to discuss. I was told by Jackwagon that the village could do as it pleased and that I could do nothing to stop not nice guy from doing as they pleased, as it was approved by the village. There was then a comment about those type of people, the gay couple, making complaints just to cause trouble. I was now on the case, 
and it was time to make sure everything done on the incorporated lot was 100% legal. At this point, the game certainly was now on because if there was one thing that grinds my gears, it's bullying. I went back out and spoke to Nice Guy to let them know what I was up to, and also that I was not going to let this slide. I then started investigating the elevations on the two lots, and what Phil had been placed on the incorporated lot. The not nice guy came out and started getting belligerent about my presence and ongoing investigation. He incorrectly stated that I did not have jurisdiction over his lot, and that he would be calling the police. I patiently listened and then pulled out my two-way radio and requested that the home base dispatch both a village and a county police unit to the location. I then indicated that since there was a regulatory floodplain on his lot, I did in fact have jurisdiction, and that I would be exercising my right to determine the impact of his fill activities upon that floodplain. Both of the police units showed up, and I let them know what was going on. They were both appropriately agitated to have to waste their time, and let Nut Nice Guy know that I was within my authority to proceed with the investigation. A little while later, I was measuring things, Jack Wagon showed up. He started berating me about harassing the village resident, and threatened calling my boss, and filing a complaint, and so forth. I invited him to do so, quoting which parts of the code he should indicate I was violating. I was using marking paint to show the limits of the floodplain for the photos for the file, and what do you know, Jack Wagon's shoe got painted when he tried to stop me. Obviously, he was even more angry, as was the homeowner, due to very bright orange paint in the grass in his yard. I pointed out I had done the same on the neighboring lots, but they just kept complaining. It was actually marking chalk that comes off pretty easily. Interestingly, I found two really wrong things on Not Nice Guy's lot. One, there was fill placed in the floodplain, and two, a garden shed was built on the fill and partially within the floodplain. Both are a big no-no and are actually against federal law, so the course of action had two parts. One, make the incorporated homeowner remove the fill and shed from the floodplain, and two, let Nice Guy place fill in their lot outside of the floodplain to counteract the fill remaining in Not Nice Guy's lot outside of the floodplain. I also told Nice Guy it would be a good idea to run a field tile on their side to drain the water that would inevitably pond up between the two lots when it rained. Predictably, Not Nice Guy and Jackwagon got super angry when I sent the letter out that there were violations that either had to be corrected, remove fill and shed, or apply for a revision of the floodplain with the Army Corps of Engineers. Good luck with that. This then led to a meeting at the county office with Not Nice Guy, Jackwagon, my supervisor, and myself. Quickly, things went to 11, and there was yelling by Jackwagon about abuse of power, etc. The department head came into the conference room and told them both they were wrong, and that they should leave peacefully and comply or face the consequences, fines. The best part was that Not Nice Guy had to apply for a permit, and guess who was the one to review and approve it? That's right, yours truly. Now, I was following the letter of the law, but you have to know that poor government workers are underpaid and overworked. Strangely, the permit for Nice Guy was almost immediately approved, while Not Nice Guy had to have a very thorough review to ensure it was correct. You can make a case that I was abusing my power, but I can assure you that the timing for their review was well within acceptable limits. Also, how can I be held to account that they misfiled three times before they finally got it right? Generally, if you behave like a civil human and come to the office, we would help you get things done properly so the permit would go through first time, but Not Nice Guy decided he could do it all in his own, so it took him three tries. Had he come to the office, I would have given him the same service as others, but he decided to take the hard route, and therefore I didn't give a single inch when it came to the submission being perfectly correct. Ultimately, the situation was resolved, but it took a lot more effort than it should have. Moral of the story? Don't be an entitled homophobic a-hole. So, there's a couple things going on here. One, I know that the village guy, the village inspector, 
uh, said something about those people. Uh, if he did, then he's he shouldn't have any business in a governmental agency. Uh, even if that's your personal thought, and we all have personal thoughts that go against where we work and things like that. But, you know, those are things you keep as inside thoughts uh, inside your head. Don't let them out. Um, me, I don't care either way. Uh, I didn't see any reference to the homeowner actually saying anything about those people. Or he was being an a-hole because he was doing what he was told he was allowed to do and then he was getting backlash. So I, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, the rules are the rules. I will also say that while you are a government employee and you can make people's lives a living hell, there will come a time when that will come around and bite you in the butt if you keep playing those games. If you follow the letter of the law, fine. But, you know, dragging your feet on one application while letting another one go straight through is kind of playing a game. And I'm not saying you were totally wrong, just be careful. Either way, if everybody would have just played nice, there could have been an easy resolution without him having to move all of the fill and the shed probably, but hey, you get what you get. How I got my landlord arrested for auto theft. I used to live in a rental townhome. The place was great. It was run by a big company, but they paid an on-site super to run the office, coordinate repairs, etc. When I moved in, it was this nice older retired couple. A few years later, they moved on and the company hired these two young dudes. They were a-holes. Recent college grads who looked down on the blue-collar tenants, did loud parties all night, generally ignored the grounds, ignored maintenance requests, etc. But that's not how I got them arrested. In addition to renting the townhouse, you could rent a covered spot. If you did, they gave you a hang tag, and if you didn't have the hang tag, you'd get towed. I had the same car, same spot, and same tag the whole time I lived there. One day I come out and my car's gone. It was towed for no hang tag, but in the pictures the tow company took, it's clearly there. I paid to get it out and complained to the two idiots. They had to call to authorize a tow. company couldn't just do it on their own. They gave me a half-assed apology. About a week later, the same problem. Again, towed for no tag. Again, the tag's right there. This time I called the corporate office and complained. After that, it started happening nearly every day. When I talked to the supers about it, they'd just laugh. I knew they were doing it on purpose, so I did some research. The tow company gave me the names of the people who called it in, and it was mostly the one guy, but some from the other two. The tow company wasn't liable because the landlords had called them, so that was out. But I did some research and found out that in my state, calling for a tow when you know it's not a legal tow is grand theft auto, just like if you broke into a car. I also found out you can record conversations in my state without telling the other person. So I went in to meet the two bros to talk about the situation. They told me, on tape, that the first two times were mistakes, but after that they did it on purpose and would keep doing so until I learned my lesson. They stated that they knew I was okay to park there, but they didn't care. I took that recording and the list of calls to a buddy who's an attorney, and he helped me take it to the local police. Police were more than happy to have a couple felony charges dropped into their laps, so they filed charges and went to arrest them. Corporate fired them the same day, refunded all of my fees for getting my car out of hock, and gave me a rental discount for a few months. They both ended up eating the felony and got probation. Last I heard, they weren't able to find decent jobs because of the felonies, and also couldn't pay their student loans. Both ended up working construction, which they'd sneered at because that's all they had left. Yup, entitlement comes in all shapes and sizes, boys and girls. I'm not sure how the party bros got that position with that corporation, but uh, obviously somebody at the corporation wasn't really paying much attention when they hired these two clowns because any kind of decent interviewer would be able to tell right away that these guys were snotty and entitled and, I mean, you can hide some stuff about your personality, but generally speaking, 
Like I wear most of my feelings and my personality and my psychoses on my sleeve. I can hide them if I choose to. I just choose not to. But I'm also a really good judge of character when it comes to most people. And I can tell if they're going to be difficult to deal with or not. So, yep. Also, as for recording in a one-party state or two-party state or whatever, my logic has always been record either way. It's not illegal to record in a two-party state in most states as long as you're using it properly. It doesn't mean it's admissible in court. It doesn't mean you can post it on YouTube. It doesn't mean you can, you know, whatever. Uh, or sometimes you can post it publicly, but you can't make money on it. There are different stipulations in different areas, but I don't think it's totally illegal to record in a two-party state without their knowledge. just depends on how you can use it, but it may not be admissible in court, but I still think having that leverage may help you in the long run. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but I record everything, so it is what it is. You've been listening to Storytime with Uncle Reddit. If you enjoy this content, be sure to follow my podcast. I upload new episodes at least three times a week.